Well, good morning. It's good to see you. It's been a fun journey as we've walked through the Gospel of John together. Whether you are just starting out on your journey with Jesus, this is a great way to kind of get acquainted with who Jesus is. If you've been a follower of Jesus Christ for a long time, it's great to be reminded of who Jesus is and kind of get a more in-depth, maybe more intimate kind of understanding of who Jesus Christ is. Now, we're on pace right now. We're about halfway through the Gospel of John, a little bit over halfway, and it's been a little bit over a year, okay? So that's about like standard Valley Bible Church pace when we go through a book of the Bible. So hopefully in a year or so, I'm not going to make any promises because then you'll hold me to them, but we will finish the gospel of John. What I want to do is this. I want to kind of stop. Let's just take a, a pit stop, if you will. If we're on a slow walk with Jesus, let's just pause for a moment, right? Let's just kind of get out of the car, kick the tires a little bit, check the fluids, okay? I want, I want to do this. I want you to ask this question of yourself as we've journeyed through the Gospel of John. Ask yourself this question. Do you have a balanced view of Jesus? Do you have a balanced view of Jesus? Now, what do I mean by that? If I were to ask a hundred people, a hundred people, what's your idea of Jesus? If you were going to paint a portrait of Jesus, what would it look like? If you were to describe Jesus, uh, not maybe with a paintbrush, but with words, how would you describe him? What would that portrait look like? If I asked a hundred people, I would get a hundred different portraits, right? All different kind of dynamics that people would highlight. Some people would paint this portrait of Jesus kind of being a, a wise teacher, right? Very, very practical, very day-to-day, very, very helpful, Others would paint Jesus maybe uh, as kind of a confrontational prophet who spoke in very black and white terms, very direct. Others would say, well, maybe Jesus is a a listener. You know, he prizes honesty. He seeks out vulnerability. He wants those moments where you're able to confess your deepest longings. Now, are those different pictures bad? They're not bad. They're not bad. They're good. All of them are actually correct. But when we look at one of them, and only one of them, then that's where we get into problems. Because everything I just described there is everything that's described in here. But we have to have a balanced view of Jesus. We have to realize that just one portrait won't do. Think of it like this. Let me show you how imbalance can be dangerous. Jesus is incredibly compassionate person. We see that in the scriptures. But Jesus is also very confrontational when it comes to the sin that's in people's lives. He calls it out. He doesn't want people to live a rebellious lifestyle. Now, if we err on the side of compassion, what's going to happen to us? If that's the portrait we really focus on and we're in balance and compassion seems to be the chief virtue of Jesus, what will happen is we are in danger of becoming more permissive of the behavior that we think people should do. Now, on the other side, if we're more confrontational, we like the kind of clear-cut, black and white, kind of rigid teaching. What could happen to us there? Well, we could become judgmental. We could become self-righteous. When we're not balanced, things get dangerous. And here's what we're going to see in our passage today. We're going to see imbalance. We're not going to see a wrong view of Jesus, but we're going to see an imbalanced view of Jesus. 
Jesus will interact with this expectation that's not wrong per se, but it needs to be balanced. And here's what we'll find, is when there is imbalance, it's incredibly, incredibly dangerous. So that's why I think it's a good question for us to ask ourselves as we're about halfway through the gospel. So jump into John chapter 12. We're starting with verse 12. And here's what I think we're going to find to be the main idea of our passage. It's the big idea for today. And it's going to be a big idea based on balance. We're going to see two kind of portraits of Jesus in our passage. So if you're going to write down one thing, I want you to write this down. The big idea for today is this. Jesus is both warrior and savior. Jesus is both warrior and savior. He is a warrior, meaning he has enemies. There are people who are set against Jesus, people that oppose Jesus, people who willfully throw off the benevolent rule of King Jesus, and Jesus will have a decisive victory over his enemies. We cannot deny that theme in the Bible. He is a warrior, but he's also a savior. He's not here just to defeat his enemies. He's also here to redeem his enemies, to save his enemies. And keeping that balance is incredibly important. If we don't, we run into danger. Let me show you this. John chapter 12, starting with verse 12. John chapter 12, starting with verse 12. We're going to encounter the expectation of the crowd, and they will want Jesus to be a warrior king. Watch this. John 12, verse 12. It says, The next day the uh, the large crowd that had come to the feast, this is the feast of Passover, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took palm branch, or took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Okay, what's going on right now? Right now we're at Passover time. They're celebrating a huge day uh, for the Jewish people. This is a, a giant day, a huge party. One historian said that over 100,000 people would flood into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. So when it says large crowd, it means large crowd. This is a mega event. This is a big deal. And this large crowd hears that Jesus is coming. He's making his way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And so what they do is they hear about Jesus and they say, Great! As he's coming, they greet him with palm branches. What does that mean? Right? Isn't that kind of odd? Have you ever welcomed a guest like that? Come over to your house and as they come in, you just lay down palm branches. (laughs) Right, that would be odd, right? What's going on here? There's something incredibly significant here. Why are they doing this? It's because palm branches mean something. They mean kingship. They mean victory. They mean warrior. They mean military might. Before Jesus ever came into Jerusalem, there were two men, just who lived a little over 100 years before Jesus, both in the same family, the family of the Maccabees. One by the name of Simon, one by the name of Judas. Simon, the Maccabee, and I think it's 141 BC, pushed out the Syrian forces that were occupying Jerusalem. And as he had that military victory, the people welcomed him with praise, and they shook, guess what? Palm branches as they did it. Just 20 years prior to that, Judas Maccabee 
pushed out the Seleucid Empire, who was occupying Jerusalem at the time, pushed them out, and they rededicated the temple. That's the feast that we know in modern terms as Hanukkah, that commemorates that day. Well, when Judas Maccabee came into Jerusalem, and they were celebrating his military victory, they welcomed him with, guess what? Palm branches. After Jesus, when the Jews were pushing off the Roman forces, they made coins. Coins so that they could do commerce amongst each other and didn't have to include the Romans. And guess what they put on their coins? Palm branches. Palm branches were a sign of military might, of victory, of force, of kingship. So when Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, celebrating Passover... Passover, which is a celebration of God's deliverance from Egypt, a victory. Then you have all of these promises that God has said prior to Jesus that there would be a hero that would come to deliver God's people, to reunite them with their God, and to bring them back into a place of blessing. They're waiting for a hero, they know he's coming. They've seen a couple heroes. And now as Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem, they say, awesome, here's the king. Here he is. Here's our warrior. Just like we've seen 100 years prior, my my grandparents told me about the great victories of the Maccabees. Let's welcome him. He's going to throw off the Roman oppressor. And their kind of action then matches their words. Look what they say as Jesus comes in. They lay down the palm branches, a symbol of welcoming a military king, and then they say these words, Hosanna, which means save us now. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Now what they're doing is they're kind of repeating a lyric of a song. We call them psalms in the Bible. And in Psalms 118, this is one of those lyrics. And Psalm 118 actually became one of their favorite songs, kind of like their theme song. Better, actually, it was their fight song. Because it was a song about military victory. And this is the lyric that they're quoting as Jesus coming in clearly being welcomed as a king. Go to Psalms 118. I want to show you what they have in mind as they're welcoming in Jesus. What is their expectation? Their expectation, their hope, their ambition is that Jesus would be a warrior king. Look at this song. Right? Let's look at this song. A song, by the way, which they sung during the festival of Passover. They've already been singing it. They're going to sing it. And as Jesus comes... They sing it to him. Look at the whole song. We're going to start at actually verse 5 of Psalms 118. Psalms 118, verse 5. The first four verses just repeat over and over, kind of in lyrical, kind of rhythmic fashion, that God's love endures forever. But listen to this. And we get a picture of a person in this song. Verse 5. He says, Out of my distress I called on the Lord. And the Lord answered me, and he set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on, this, on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in men. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All the nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. Now, what's going on here? Is this just a guy who's in trouble? 
Well, clearly he's in trouble. Sounds like he's in trouble. But this isn't just an average citizen. Look down at verse 10. Look at how he talks about himself. All the nations surround me. Now, if you're just an individual, normal citizen of a nation and you speak like this, you're paranoid, right? All the nations are around me. What is he talking like? He's talking like a leader. He's talking like a king. He is afraid that nations, or he's afraid of the nations that are surrounding him. He represents his people. He is the head of his nation. And he's saying, all the other nations are around me. He is a king. And look at this warrior king. God delivers him, and he wins the battle. All the nations surround me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. Man, this guy's delivered. But then the scene kind of changes. Here's how it changes. We have this king who's just won on the battlefield. And now, and you'll see this, he's going to go to the temple. He's going to go to Jerusalem. He's making his journey to the place of worship. And as he goes there, there's kind of another group that we see. There's a group in the temple. There's a group in kind of the center of Jerusalem who's welcoming the king. And there's another group that's with the king. My guess is it's probably his army, those who have fought with him. So we now we have the king, we have his army, and we have them traveling to where? Jerusalem, to the temple. This is exactly what Jesus is doing. And look at how they welcome him. Look at the language here. All right, we're in verse 18. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Here's the parade, the military parade. He's just won the battle. Right? This is where we get the, the idea of the city gates being open. Verse 19. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I might enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me, and you have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now stop right there. Does that sound familiar? Does that language sound familiar to you? If you're familiar with the Bible, that language should be very familiar to you. The stone that, was, that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. There's a guy named Peter, one of the closest followers of Jesus Christ. In his first sermon in Acts chapter 4, he calls somebody this cornerstone. Who is that person? It's Jesus Christ. Is it right for those that are welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem with palm branches to apply Psalms 118 to Jesus? Absolutely. Peter did it. Peter did it in Acts chapter 4, an apostle of Jesus Christ, one of the, the, the primary leaders of the first century church. He said, this is Jesus. This is King Jesus. And look at how he's received. Verse 23. This is when we see the other groups here. We're not talking about a singular person alone. Verse 23. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous 
in our eyes. This is the crowd saying, look at the king, he's one. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad. Save us. That turn right there, that's actually Hosanna. It's the exact phrase that they said in John 12. It just wasn't translated for us in the Gospel of John. It means, save us. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Here's the exact words. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Save us. Look at that. Isn't that interesting? Verse 25. Save us, we pray, O Lord. Does that seem weird? I mean, think about it. The guy just won the battle. He's been delivered. He's on the parade. That's like the coach coaching up the team after they won the finals and are on the parade. All right, guys, huddle up. I mean, they got the championship, right? They're on the parade. All right, huddle up, guys. Here's how we're going to win. Coach, it's already done. Why would they be praying for salvation when they've already been saved? It's because they're future-focused as well. It's not just about the past, what God has done for them. They say, I want you to keep us safe. Keep us from our enemies. Now you see why the people are welcoming in Jesus this way. They're saying, save us from our oppressor. Save us from Rome. Save us from the enemies of God. Save us. Save us like you did here. Save us. Is it appropriate for them to say that? 100%. Absolutely. Jesus is a warrior king who will cut off his enemies. Just like Psalms 118 says. Peter applied it to them. It's the right thing. So how does Jesus receive it? How does Jesus take it? Go back to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. How does Jesus receive this expectation that he should be the king of Psalms 118? He receives the title. He takes it. But he needs to modify it. He needs to change it a little bit. And this is why. Because their view is imbalanced. It's imbalanced. They want a warrior, but they don't want a savior. They want somebody to come in, win their battles, defeat their enemies. But they're not about somebody winning the enemy over. Just winning over the enemy. So Jesus picks a very interesting teaching tool to teach them this lesson that they need to be balanced. And the tool he uses is a donkey. Right? If my teacher in school would have used farm animals to teach me lessons, I would have done so much better in school. Right? But look what Jesus does. He's receiving all of this idea of him being king. And it says, and Jesus found, verse 14, and Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. What is Jesus doing here? Well, Jesus doesn't need a donkey. Jesus isn't calling an, a first century Uber. That's not what he's doing here. The distance isn't very far. I, and Jesus, I mean, if we, as we journey through the Gospel of John, realize that Jesus is walking everywhere. Jesus is probably pretty fit. So Jesus doesn't need to walk out of necessity. And it wasn't common practice for pilgrims who would journey to Jerusalem on Passover to ride into Jerusalem. They would come walking into Jerusalem. It was part of their custom. So why is Jesus riding on a donkey? Why would he do that? Especially after he's hearing these songs sung about a warrior king. 
Does a warrior king ride in on a donkey? You ever seen a military movie, like an old, old movie set in ancient times, right? Where you've got some weird name that's got an X in it, Maximus, Lexus, whatever, right? Comes riding in. Do you ever see him riding into battle, giving this speech, right? He's got a sword that's made out of human bones, and he's coming into his people. And as he gets to the troops, and he's got to convince them to give their lives for glory, and he's sitting on a donkey while he's doing it. That'd be like a five-star general rolling up in a Prius onto a battlefield. You know, just that little, like that creepy little noise. It, does. it sounds like it's whimpering to me. I don't know it's because I have kids, but I feel like Prius is wine. Like, I'm like, dude, stop it. I'm going to put you in your room. All right, charge you. Whatever you need to do, but stop the little, like, it's just so annoying to me. Right? If you want to roll up on a battlefield, you don't do it in a Prius. You do it in a tank. Right? You roll up in a tank. All right, we're going to win this thing. Why is Jesus rolling up on a donkey? Why, why would he do that? What does he want to teach them? See, their actions spoke a lot when they welcomed Jesus with palm branches. Jesus' actions speak a lot. And the words that are associated with those actions also speak a lot. Just as they sung their words that met their expectation, Jesus, you are our warrior king. So to Jesus' words that he fulfills... And riding it on a donkey speak volumes. This is their imbalance here, and Jesus needs to correct that balance. Yes, I'm king. I'm a warrior, but I'm a savior. Right? Look at the next verse. He fulfills prophecy, verse 14. And Jesus found a young donkey, sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. What's that passage? Zechariah chapter 9. Let's look at it together. Let's get the whole thing. Just like we got the whole song, let's get the whole kind of prophecy being fulfilled. Zechariah chapter 9, starting with verse 5. Now this first part, man, it is warrior time. It is king time. Jesus is definitely a military force. God is depicted as this great warrior who kind of moves through the cities in the north. And he's pressing down, moving south, and he's going to make his encampment in Jerusalem. So the king is on a journey to Jerusalem in Zechariah chapter 9, or God is on a move to the city of Jerusalem. And look what it says he does. On his way to Jerusalem, he is going to vanquish his foes. He's going to destroy his enemy. Look at verse 5. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid. Gaza too shall writhe in anguish. Ekron also because it hopes, its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. A mixed people shall dwell in an Ashdod. And I will cut off the pride of Philistia. Now this is the part that's confusing. Right there, everything sounds good. That sounds like Psalms 118. You gave me victory. I cut him off. You gave him victory. I cut him off. Right? King time. Warrior time. That's what it sounds like so far. But then he does something. Now, that last city mentioned was Philistia. Those are the the Philistine people. If you remember, there's a story in the Old Testament about one big Philistine. His name is Goliath. And David, future king, kills Goliath. And the Philistines were always a problem for the people of Israel. Always. They were constantly their enemies. So it feels pretty good so far in verse 6. Oh, he's going to cut off the pride of the enemies of God. 
But then look what else he does. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 7, says this. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abomination from between its teeth. What? What is he describing there? I'm sorry, because you haven't eaten lunch yet. Here's what it's describing. God loved to set his people apart in the Old Testament, to make them holy. And he wanted to show the nations that his people were different, so they dressed different. Their clothes were made differently. They would eat different foods. They'd have all these different things that were set apart. And to not eat like that was to to eat or clothe oneself in an unclean manner. So God wanted to show that there was a difference. Well, these people, the people of the Philistines, used to kind of put together these meals, and, and they would almost be like a magic brew. They would eat, and in celebration of their gods, they would eat these meals. And he's probably talking about, the prophet Isaiah kind of reveals a little bit more, that they're like eating pig's flesh is what they're doing, and making this kind of stew, this kind of magical brew, and they're eating it as they worship other gods. I'm sorry if I spoiled You know what? You're going to lose weight after the service, okay? So you're welcome. You're welcome for that three pounds you just lost, okay? Well, what is he describing here? God is describing, I'm going to rip that meal out of their mouth. Like pork rinds, ah, right? I'm going to move it out of their mouth. I'm going to rip it away from them. They're not going to have this meal to their gods anymore. Why does he do that? He says, I will take away, verse 7, its blood from its mouth and its abomination from between its teeth, and it shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah. Judah. Judah is a tribe of Israel. You're going to make the Philistines part of Israel? You're going to make them a remnant? They're going to become one of us? They're going to be like us? Now, hold on a second here. Do you think that that's what those people were cheering about? You think the people, as they were receiving Jesus on Passover, coming into the city of Jerusalem, putting down those palm branches, singing, save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Do you think of themselves, oh, finally, somebody is here to help the Romans. Oh, finally, the Romans will know the sweetness of enjoying God's blessing. Oh, I'm so excited that our Roman oppressors will be freed from the tyranny of sin over their lives. They will worship Yahweh. They will worship God. They will worship our covenant God. They will worship and and be clean. They will be forgiven. They will be transformed. They will be saved. Oh, so happy, Jesus, you're here. You guess what they were thinking? No! What did they want? Sweet Jesus here. He's going to defeat these guys. And we've seen what he can do. He can bring dead people back to life. That's really good when it comes to an army. Right? Because, like, fine, we'll take five people. We'll just keep coming back to life. Right? We'll be the holy zombie Israelite army. We'll eventually get all the Romans if we just keep coming back to life. That's what they think right now. Right? Here's our moment. We thought what what Judas Maccabee did was great, or Simon Maccabee did was great. We thought them pushing away the Seleucid Empire and the Syrian forces was great. But we got a guy now who will be the king of Psalms 118, who will cut off the Romans. Finally, our king is here. And what does Jesus say? Nope, that's not me. Oh, I'm a warrior. I'm a king. 
I will defeat my enemies, but I'll also save them. I will transform them. Even the great enemies of the Philistines, constant antagonists in the scripture. And Zechariah says there's a king who's coming who will take the sin right out of their mouth. Look what else this king does. Verse 9. And this is where we get the quote that John gives us. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous. Righteousness and having salvation is he humbled and mounted on a donkey. There he is. And is he a king of war? Is he a king of force? Is he a king who only defeats the enemy? Now look at what he brings, verse 10. I will cut off, interesting word, right? We just heard that in Psalms 118. I will cut them off. What does this king cut off? He says, I will cut off the chariots from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. Wait, wait, wait. This is the people of God. You're going to destroy our tanks? You're going to disarm our nukes? You're going to take the bullets out of our guns? You're going to bend our swords? Jesus, that's not very helpful. But he is a king of what? Of peace. And he will bring peace to the people of Israel. Ephraim and Jerusalem, this is the northern and southern kingdoms, reunited under the blessed rule of the king, but they're not the only ones who benefit. It says, And the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. And his rule shall be from sea to sea, from river to the ends, or from the river to the ends of the earth. Jesus is a savior, king. And he rules the nations in peace. This is not what they wanted. They didn't like this. They wanted King Jesus, warrior King Jesus. And they didn't get that. And not many got it. The disciples didn't understand it. Right? Look at the reaction of the disciples. Verse 16 of John chapter 12. His disciples didn't understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, this is his death and resurrection... Then they remembered these things had been written about him and had been done to him. He's saying they didn't get it until they saw Jesus die and rise again. They didn't get how the king would suffer for his people. They didn't get how victory actually meant suffering for this king. They didn't get that. They didn't understand that. But when they saw Jesus rise again from the dead, they realized what he did. Now I said, if we're imbalanced, it's dangerous. Okay, for me, this is probably the, the saddest part of our passage for today. We have this group of people who aren't wrong. They're not wrong. They picked the right song to sing to Jesus. They did. Peter preaches that song. It's one of his first sermons. This is good. A plus. But it's imbalanced. And Jesus teaches that to him or to them. But the next two groups that come up, the crowds and the religious leaders, will become the co-conspirators to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Right, look at it. Verse 17. Then the crowd that had been with him, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. Now, is this good or bad? I have to be honest, I'm very skeptical. I'm skeptical because I know what the crowd will do later. I know once we get to John chapter 18 and then Jesus is arrested, things progress. And one of the reasons why, the main reason why the Romans actually had Jesus crucified was because the crowds 
pressured them to do so. These guys pressured him to do so. The guys who were singing Hosanna, welcoming Jesus on Passover to be their warrior king. They're the ones in the crowd screaming, kill him, crucify him. We don't want him anymore. And why is that? It's because they were led by these men, the religious leaders. Verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you, that, that you are gaining nothing. We're not winning here. Look, the world has gone after him. Right? This is a losing battle. We cannot win. We must kill him. Oh, how dangerous our imbalance can be. I mean, think for a moment. This crowd, do they have the wrong book? No. Are they are irreligious? Are they atheists? Are they agnostics? No. They're religious people. They're religious people with the right book. They even got the right chapter. But their view of God, their view of Jesus was what? Imbalanced. Uh, Think about the irony for a moment here. They had the wrong expectation of God's hero, and that dangerous imbalance of their view of that hero made them the villain. That's how imbalance can be so incredibly dangerous. I think we have to realize that one of the greatest dangers against Christianity is not non-religion or atheism. It's false religion. It's imbalance is what it is. That's exactly what led to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The crowd screaming out, Rome, give us what we want. We have no king but Caesar. Because that guy is not the king we want. We came for a warrior to defeat our enemy. And he came running on a donkey. Imbalance can be dangerous. So let's go back to that question I asked you in the beginning. Is your view of Jesus balanced? Is it balanced? Because if it's in balance, it can be dangerous. As you think about that, let's just take those themes, the themes of this crowd, warrior and savior. You can ask yourself this question. Penetrate a little deeper into your heart. When you look at the world, when you look at those around you, when you look at those that disagree with you, when you look at those that have a different political affiliation than you, When you look at those that have different virtues than you. When you look at those who have a different view of marriage than you. When you look at those who disagree with you. What do you see? Right? If you're imbalanced on the warrior side, you'll see enemies that need to be defeated. Right? But if you have the balance that Jesus is also Savior, what are you going to see? You're going to see the world is not just filled with enemies. It's filled with orphans. Orphans that need to hear the voice of their creator saying, you come back to me. You come into this family. You become my son. You become my daughter. Just be honest with yourself. Just think of your, your impulse, your reaction. And if I'm honest, I know. I naturally, naturally have the perspective of enemy. 
somebody who needs to be defeated, right? I get anxious. I need, I need to win the day. I need to have the advantage. I need the friendly legislation. I need something comfortable with my conscience. I, I, I'm uncomfortable with your position. I don't like where you're going. But is that the heart of Jesus? I need to see him riding in on the donkey to being the prince of peace and not just a warrior king. To, to, to one who comes and rips out the sin out of the mouth of my enemy and transforms them and forgives them. Would you resent God if he forgave your enemy? If that's true, then you have the wrong view. You have an imbalanced view, and it's dangerous. You may not be here, but you're on your way to it. You're on your way to it. If you would resent God for forgiving your enemy, then you need to change your perspective. You need to have much more balance in your life. It's true. Is Jesus a warrior king? Absolutely he is. You can't, we can't downplay that theme in Scripture. There are enemies of Christ. There are people who oppose his rule and his reign, who push away his benevolent kingship in disobedience. There are people who push away his offer of forgiveness. There are people who want to see his voice, his message, his glory not be given. Any credence, any time, any airplay. That is true. And Jesus is a warrior king. There is a battle in the end, and it will be so incredibly decisive in its victory. That Jesus' judgment, there is no shield to block you from the judgment of God. His arrow will pierce through. No matter how thick you think that shield is, it will get through. There's descriptions in the Bible where people will actually, or uh, theoretically, or hypothetically, right, Jesus describes it as people will be so terrified of the judgment of God that they'll call out to mountains to cover them. And it won't work. Think about it. A mountain of dirt won't keep people from the warrior king who will come. It'll be decisive. No point scored by the opposing team at all. It'll be a blowout. But he's also Savior. And he's also patient. And he's also kind. And he's also loving. And he's also gentle. And he wants to save his enemies before he has to defeat them. He wants to offer forgiveness. And he dies. He dies to do so. He rises again to say, here, share in my victory. So how do you view those around you? Is the world full of enemies or orphans? And maybe you're like me, right? If you're honest, you know that you slip into that. You know it's easy to fall into that. Maybe even the longer that you've been a Christian, it's easier to fall into that. What's a practical way to stop that? Jesus tells us to pray for those who what? Persecutors. What a terrible idea. Do you ever want good things to happen to the opposing team? No. Right? If I'm going to war, I would be pleasantly surprised as we're lining up the troops that half of them are lame. Woohoo! Right? I'd be fine if before we ever shot a shot, they were struck with blindness. Good for me. Right? I don't want fortunate things to happen to those who are opposing me. 
But Jesus has this crazy idea we should pray for people who persecute us. Wow. I think prayer is a perfect place to start. To change your perspective. If you know inside you have that perspective, that vantage point. Warrior and defeat. And you need, you need your perspective to tilt in the other direction that he is Savior seeking to redeem, to call back orphans. Perfect practice to start is prayer. Start praying for orphans. Start praying for people who are not yet following Jesus, that they would follow Jesus. And I got a super practical way for you to do that. I'm going to make it easy to obey today. Make it easy for you to apply this to your life. One of the things I love about Valley Bible Church, probably the first thing that that impressed me when I came on a visit, this is a long time ago when I first came here to do youth ministry. I came during the summer and I saw the craziness of summer here at Valley Bible Church. It is nuts. Bungee soccer, volleyball madness, youth camps, summer night camps, all this stuff. And we go all out to reach kids and students with the gospel of Jesus Christ in the summer. Something that we should be extremely proud of that we do. So I want to ask you to do this. There are cards that look like this. I've got three of them. Not because I'm more holy than you, just because I wanted to show you three of them. These are three cards, and on these cards, you see there's instructions to pray. You got a coach on there and all the players on there. You're going to see these. We're going to keep going through these throughout the summer. Why? Asking God that one student, one student would take one step closer to Jesus this summer through what we do. That these orphans would come to know their father. So here's what I want you to do, okay? First service did a great job, so you have something to live up to. I told them I want every single card gone, okay? And they took so many we had to print more. Uh, so that's a good thing. So I want you to take one of these. And I want you to, you could just set it where you read your Bible. You could set it at work. You could set it in front of your computer. You could set it wherever you are during the day. Set it there and pray every single day. Father, I want to see these orphans come to know you. I want them to know the Prince of Peace. Who will come, the one riding on a donkey. Who can change their heart. I don't want them to know him as warrior. I don't want them to see fierce judgment in his eyes. I don't want them to know the sword that strikes and destroys the soul. I don't want them to know that. I want them to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. I don't want them to hear, depart from me. I don't even know you. I want them to know you as father. You pray like that every day this summer for, for teams, for cabins, for crew leaders, for all that. You do that, I'm telling you, at the end of the summer, your perspective will change. And you will be fine with the one who rides in on a donkey. Church family, let's pray. Father, we love you. Oh, Father, we thank you for who you are to us in Jesus Christ. As we say today, you are a good father a loving, compassionate, kind Father. And I pray, God, that we would have a balanced view of who you are. That you are compassionate, kind, loving, gentle, long-suffering. But also you are holy and just. You You are the one who has every right to judge us. But you're also the one who can save us from that judgment.
What a beautiful balance. Father, I pray that you'd give us a balanced perspective on those around us, on those we interact with every day of our lives, that we wouldn't see the world as enemies, but see the world as orphans. We're not looking to defeat those around us, but we're hoping and praying and working to see those around us redeemed, restored, called back home. So, Father, I pray you'd do the work. Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd do the work on us. I know personally for myself my shortcomings in this, in, this, in this way. I know that I'm not always kind, patient, generous. Not like somebody was to me. I remember telling Christians that I hated their God. And they still put up with me. I wish I could say I have that same posture, but I don't know if I do. So, Father, work on me. Work on me first. Help me. Help me to see orphans. Oh, what do I would do to chase my kids down? Oh, what do I do if one of them was lost? I would do everything to find them. Father, help us run with you. You are seeking to save those that are lost. Oh, would we look with you, search with you, until they are found. Father, make this summer a great summer of us seeing lives changed and people called back to you. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Again, those cards are right there outside the lobby. Thank you for joining us this Sunday. We look forward to seeing you next Sunday.